Okay, pause again, because I, I didn't do the thing. You also said le dirt. Le dirt. <laughs> Bienvenue à le dirt. <laughs> Welcome to the dirt. Today, we're going to discuss the Rosetta Stone and the race to decipher hieroglyphics. Yeah, well, Napoleon was involved. Napoleon, which is an opportunity for me to dust off my most ridiculous French accent. I'm ready. I'm ready. Um, Actually, I want to talk about Napoleon for a minute before you get to the Rosetta Stone. Um, Yeah. I will set the scene, the milieu. Uh, The... Sen. No, that's a river. Anyway, uh, it is July 1st, 1798. So I guess the anniversary just just passed of this date. How did you, how did you observe it? Uh, I invaded a small Middle oh. Eastern country. Oh, too soon. Too soon, 1798. <laughs> anyway. On July 1st, 1798, Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, landed in Egypt with 400 ships and 54,000 men and proceeded to invade the country, as was his wont. So, um, Napoleon wanted to wage war in Egypt, in the Middle East in general. Um, This was not an ordinary military campaign, though. In addition to his soldiers and his sailors, Napoleon brought along 150 scientists, engineers, and scholars, uh, who he called his team of savants, and their responsibility was to capture Egyptian culture and history. So ultimately, Napoleon didn't succeed in his military endeavor. He dipped out of there to evade the British, but the scholarly work was actually a great success and really um, spurred on the advent of Egyptomania in Europe. So Napoleon's scholars did things like make meticulous topographical surveys, they studied the native animals and plants of Egypt, they collected and classified local minerals and studied local trade and industry, and most famously, they rediscovered ancient Egypt. Stuff that had been lost to time or just kind of ignored by the the then modern Egyptians. The French teams found the temples and tombs of Luxor, Philide, and Dera, and the Valley of the Kings, and each of these sites was measured and mapped and drawn and recorded in meticulous detail, and this sort of brought back into public consciousness of the pharaonic Egypt, the Egypt of the ancient pharaohs, that um, the outside world had never seen before. Um, and in 1809, the first volumes of their collected work, the Description de l'Egypte, were published. And over the years, uh, a total of 23 volumes would appear, the last of which was in 1828. And three of these were the largest books that had ever been printed, standing over 43 inches tall. So, like, the the width of the book was... Dang. Yeah. It's a big book. A little light bedtime reading. Um, the total yeah. set, like if you own the total set, it contained 837 engravings, pictures that were printed, um, and many of them were of unprecedented size, which means that you could see um, 
tons of detail capturing Egyptian culture from every possible vantage point. So this is this is when Europe really got to see what ancient Egypt had to offer. Unfortunately, in 2011, the Institute of Egypt, uh, which was a research center that was set up by Napoleon during this invasion period, um, caught fire during political clashes between protesters and Egypt's military, and it had been home to a treasure trove of writings, including that 24-volume Description de l'Egypte. Only three copies now uh, exist of this volume in the world, but fortunately, one of these has been digitized and it's available online. It's not to diminish um, the tragedy of the destruction that occurred, but Fortunately, this major work um, is now available digitally, which is really cool. This sort of scholarly campaign that happened alongside Napoleon's military campaign, um, one of its most important finds was the Rosetta Stone. That's right. And so the Rosetta Stone was discovered quite coincidentally, as these things seem to be happening. And that was in the summer of 1799. It's actually, we are coming right up on the anniversary of it. Oh, so I'll make a can, Rosetta Stone cake. You can listen to this episode. It was, it was discovered when a uh, demolition coom remodeling team, we can call them, of French imperial engineers just blasted through an old Ottoman fort in Rashid. Mm. Um, and Rashid is a town northwest of Alexandria, very close to where the Nile empties into the Mediterranean. Um, Rashid was called Rosetta by the French. Is it yeah. just like, no, we will call it what we want? Yes. Yeah, that definitely seems to be what it is. Seems French. Um, the accounts state that the officer in charge quickly recognized the importance of its three far- parallel inscriptions and sent the stone off to Cairo. Now, if you ca- if you look at it, you can... I mean, I'm sure it wasn't the officer in charge that noticed it. I'm sure everyone noticed it. But he's the one that, that called for it to be sent off to Cairo, where the savant, the the nerd arm of the Napoleonic military campaign... Le Geek Squad. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, they awaited its arrival with bated breath. So uh, the Rosetta Stone, yes. just for anyone who doesn't know, what does it look like? So um, the... Rosetta Stone is um, sort of a quadrilateral. I'm like using my hands to, to map it out for no one. Audio uh, format. So it's kind of a, yep, 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 yep. So it's a it's a kind of quadrilateral shaped stone. And so it's what we call a, a stela or a steli. Mm-hmm. So it, it, depending on whether you prefer the Latin or the Greek. Um, and a stela is a slab of stone that's inscribed with... Um, with a declaration of some kind. And usually at the top of it, it features a scene of the deities or kings or whomever performing what the contents of the writing say. So it's so like an it's ancient something... billboard. Yeah, yeah. Or like um, another, a lot of times it's something where um, like you see on the sides of buildings, um, you see like the cornerstone and it says when it was constructed, who built it, who paid for it, oh, yeah, yeah. those sorts of things. Okay. Or, or also you find them in uh, religious contexts as like votive offerings that sort of are like the, the plaques that you see in buildings that are like such and such family um, gave this, gave this, this door 
this this building whatever so it's that sort of thing okay and so it's something that would be written in the official language but it also would be illustrated for folks that can't read it either because they don't speak or read the language or they aren't literate so they just kind of cover all their bases and uh, we don't actually have what's at the top of the Rosetta Stone because um, it's broken because (laughs) because they blew it up um, yeah, the methods so of excavation were um, indelicate, is a yes, word? Yes, to say the least, yeah. And uh, so the, the stone itself, what we do, the chunk we do have is pretty hefty. It's um, 45 inches tall, 28 and a half inches wide, 11 inches deep. So that's like a little over a meter or three quarters of a meter by a quarter of a meter. So it would like come up um, to my belly button. Like it's yeah, yeah. big. It's big, yeah. Um, yeah, but it was much bigger when it was done, when it, like when it was originally built. Um, and so all three sides, like all three inscriptions are damaged. Um, and only the last dozen or so lines are legible in each of the three languages. Um, but a, another clue to the original shape is the hieroglyph for Stella itself. It's uh, sort of rounded off on top, like a styrofoam tombstone that you'd put out at Halloween. Oh, that's so cool. So, so it's a word like, for the thing that is shaped like the way the thing is shaped. Yeah, yeah. And so that's going to come up when like, later when we talk about what hieroglyphs actually are. But that's sort of how we know it should have looked because that's what it looks like when you write it. Um, so you said the three languages since, on the stone. Since 17. Right? So, But what yeah. are they? Yeah. So they are... Greek, uh-huh. hieroglyphics, mm-hmm. and demotic. Okay. Demonic? Um, nope. Demotic. Demotic. So, like, yeah. So, like, deem, like democracy. So it's popular. Oh, like, the people. Oh, pop. Um, okay. So uh, this one guy, Jean-Joseph Marcel, he's the one that figured out it was demotic, which uh, is almost never used in stone inscriptions because you're not because that's what people spoke. That's what people spoke and wrote in. Like they were writing receipts, letters. They weren't um, carving stuff into the sides of buildings. Oh, okay. Or, so it like, was really so it's, the everyday language, the like lingua franca. Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, and so no one had seen it in that context. So they, it like, no one even thought to consider it until this guy. Um, and so the idea is that demotic developed it eventually evolved into coptic um which is what's used in the coptic church yep yeah and um it's very diglossic like arabic so it means like two tongues where there's a written form and a spoken form and they're very different because it sort of gets crystallized in the classical form which is like this is what we use in the religion and so you keep it that way but it changes the same thing happened with latin where uh, latin kind of froze um, when the Catholic Church crystallized and then everybody else started speaking like weirder and weirder Latin until they gave up and spoke other languages. And that's what happened um, with Demotic. Okay. And so it's, so it's, it's, so these, like I said, they were curly letters. So they're much easier to write, like handwriting, because when you think about when you're putting things in inscriptions, you're going tink, 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 and you're carving it oh, in. Oh, that must be annoying. With the little yeah, curly so like lines. doing the cur- yeah, and that's why Greek. When you see like Greek writing, or it's all, um, it's all straight lines. Yep, but if you see like handwriting, 
right. it's all curvy. Yeah. And that's, I mean, the same thing with English. But it, it's something that you don't really, you don't think about if you are mm-hmm. like raised monolingual. <laughs> and you're just like, well, that's, that's like, I remember in kindergarten when I made my A with like a little line on top, all the kids in my class were like, what is that? What are you doing? Because I was trying to make the A's look like they did in like the books we were reading. Yeah. It's, they have and, the printing. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. The ser- and so you, oh, you of, added and, the serif. Yes. That's what oh. I did. And they, yes. And I became a pariah for it. Huh. But speaking of, I was, you know, I was a tortured genius myself. Not unlike Jean-Francois Champollion. Champollion. Champollion, yes. He was born in, what is that, Figiac? Well, no, it's Figiac. <laughs> but I like Figiac. Figiac, Figiac yeah. A lot I, of, a lot of French towns well, have ac on the end. Uh, it's from one of those obscure sort of medieval dialects. Bergerac, Rufignac. Oh, okay. Yep, okay. Great. I don't know. I was holding out hope that it was one of those dialects that had a g in it that got killed out by uh, the... Uh, mm, okay, well, in Fijac, mm-hmm. on the chilly December 23rd, 1790, young Jean-Francois Champollion was born to humble circumstances. Uh, and he was there until 1801 when he moved to Grenoble. Mm-hmm. To join his big brother, Jacques Joseph, who at that time, because um, Jean-Francois was the youngest of about seven children. Um, you had to have that many back then. Yeah, because I think about four of them made it. Yep. 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 So he, at the age of 11, he went to live with his big brother, who was in the import-export business, which... I really think, I always thought that that was just a euphemism for organized crime, but perhaps he was legitimately importing and exporting things. I think he was exporting hyphens because everyone in his family seemed to use all of them. This is a very hyphen heavy crowd. Uh, But so he wanted his little brother to get an education. So he sent him off to school under the Abbe Doucet in 1802, where it was quickly revealed that he was a genius. Mon Dieu. <laughs> yep. And so by the age of 16, Jean-Francois had nailed down Latin, Greek, and under the tutelage of the Abbe Dusser, who was an Orientalist, um, he moved on to the Semitic languages. So he also mastered Hebrew, Arabic, Amharic, which is Ethiopic, Syriac, eh? and he was just on a roll. Um, that's so many languages. I, that is a lot of languages. Like I know one and a third languages. Like at this point, I'm just and he was what he was by sixteen, yeah. He, dang, okay, yeah, yeah. So he had a he had a knack for it to say the least. Um, and then in 1804, he went to a lycée, which is it's like a high school, right? It's like lycée. college prep lycée lycée. Okay. Um, he he went to he went to school there in Grenoble, um, but he whined to his older brother who was indeed bankrolling him through this whole thing. Uh, to transfer him somewhere where he wasn't limited to studying his beloved Oriental languages only one day a week. I want to study the languages a week. Uh, yeah. So, oh my God, the worst whiny teenager. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, 
he had to suck it up, but he picked up Coptic, and that kept him occupied for the next decade and some change. So he, he was in Paris from 1807 to 1809, and during that time he was, quote, so immersed in his studies that he took up the habit of dressing in Arab clothing and calling himself El Sarir, the Arab translation of Le Jeune. The Young. Ugh. Yep. So he was that guy. Ugh. Not great. Um, and while he was there, um, he his advisor, um, I, I don't know, is it his advisor? In like the 18th century? His, 19th his century mentor. How about mentor? His mentor, okay, was uh, Sylvester de Sassy. Ooh, sassy. <laughs> and he lives up to the name. Um, and de Sassy was the first Frenchman to attempt to read the Rosetta Stone. All right, sassy. Emphasis on attempt. Mm-hmm. Um, and all throughout this time, the Napoleonic Wars were a raging. And um, <laughs> Jean-Francois got to dodge the draft by repeatedly claiming that deciphering the Egyptian script was much too important to interrupt. Mm. So um, this claim was, was aided by his much more famous, much wealthier older brother and uh, the prefect of Grenoble, who happened to be an Egyptologist himself. So he had these two guys backing him up when he said, but my studies. Well, I so also he, have the impression that Egyptology was sort of fashionable to the upper, like the French aristocracy. Yeah, yeah. It was like um, like a, a noble and sexy thing to study so this is this is the the hill that he was willing to die on because he was unwilling to die on an other actual hills. hill yeah He's so um, not willing to for real die yeah but when napoleon uh rolled into grenoble after his, his liberation from elba and in 1815 um he remembered this guy oh snap draft dodging because of his important Egyptian studies. And he asked how that how all that important Egyptian was going. And Champollion, who was now a baby professor at the university in Grenoble, replied that he had just finished his Coptic grammar and dictionary. So, hmm. <laughs> you know, publish or perish, as they say, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So dictionary he, he, or die. So I imagine this being like a very sassy exchange, but not a just sassy exchange. No, no. Um, but speaking of de Sassy, oui. uh, when so Napoleon was like, oh, great. Like, I love what you did with this Coptic. Um, he he insisted that he send it off to Paris to get published. But his but now de Sassy, his mentor turned bitter rival, attempted to block it for reasons both ego driven because his his former student had now like surpassed used him. him surpassed him and maybe like climbed up him mm. and like trampled him in the process. Mm. Uh, but also they were on very different sides of the uh, political coin. But okay. I, I got the impression that Champollion wasn't, um, wasn't really out and proud about his Napoleon support. I would imagine that he's the kind of guy who is too, interested in his own pet projects to really even pay attention to politics but i would yeah his family supports way. napoleon so he sort of de facto is a napoleon yeah and supporter. napoleon and napoleon was pretty into him and so i mean that goes a long way yeah but so um so this is in 1815 mm -hmm. when he had his 
his um, bro down with bro down ho down with Napoleon in Grenoble, um, and that's when he turned his attention back to ancient Egyptian languages, having having now conquered more contemporary Egyptian languages. Um, and he wrote Thomas Young for Young's copy of the Rosetta texts, which, as you remember, uh, are now 16 years out of the ground. And de Sassy had refused to pass along his copies to Champollion. So he turned to Thomas Young, okay. who was the poster boy for British Egyptology. So Thomas Young is 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 really the forgotten the forgotten one in all of this because he had been he had been working he hadn't been working that long on the Rosetta Stone since 1813 but he picked this up as kind of a second career after being a theoretical physicist he came up with oh. the wave theory of light among some other things All right Tommy yeah. so yeah so um yeah 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 so like Thomas Young was quite the polymath and he was he was sort of humble about the whole thing. And um, Champollion was has, is described as being dismissive of Young's work sight unseen, but he still read everything Young wrote, and Rude. like wanted all his notes, hmm. but like thought it was garbage. Hmm. So yeah, so like not great. But in 1815, so this all this the same year, um, Young figured out that demotic is was a combination of imitations of hieroglyphics and alphabetic signs and so hieroglyphics and demotics both work as um, a combination of ideograms and alphabetic signs like a rebus puzzle so let me talk through my understanding of hieroglyphics to make sure i have it correct great so when you look at hieroglyphs you typically see a series of symbols some of them look like squiggly lines some of them look like actual objects or animals so there's like a lion there's an owl there's a feather and they're they're all kind of stylized and in some cases the picture represents the thing that's in the picture but also often the picture also means a sound like buh or duh or a vowel sound so you can combine those things as long as you know which one is a picture or sound at any given time. Right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the reason why um, each of them came to this conclusion is because the number of um, like pictograms does not equal the number of sounds in Greek. Like it's, it's like such a different number. So, yeah, the thing about the Rosetta Stone is that it's three blocks of text, and it's all the same block of text in three different languages. Yes. And they realized that, but then they realized that if every single hieroglyph was a picture meaning a word, it didn't match up to the rest of the text. Exactly. Okay. And, yeah, and so it w- they were like, okay, so there's something else going on here. And they also worked backwards from cartouches. So the cartouche is the, the circle that in- encloses uh, the name of a pharaoh. Yeah, if you're important, and, you get your own name circle. Yeah, and so this was, um, so what the what is on the uh, Rosetta Stone is the decree of Memphis. And oh, this yeah, is that one. To- yeah, Ptolemy V. Oh, not Elvis? And so they... Not Elvis, Memphis. No, oh jeez. Um, yeah. So anyway, it, please. So continue. they found the name Ptolemy, and so they're like, okay, this says Ptolemy. Uh, what else? 
And so that's sort of like that's you can have these kind of known quantities. So they were each working on this. It was fierce competition between Team Britain, Team France. It was actually like really serious. A lot of people were deeply invested in this. Um, it's and, hard to imagine, but I get it. Right. Um, but this ha- this went on for seven years Jeez. until Champollion pulled out ahead and cracked it. Hey. And so this so I'm this quote is pulled from a review of uh, a biography of him from 2012. Okay. Um, and I just I just really like I just really like it. And you are going to be the voice of Champollion en français. I'm ready. Okay. Jean-Francois Champollion's eureka moment came just before noon on the 14th of September, 1822, when the 31-year-old burst into his brother and fellow savant's office in the Academy of Inscriptions and Belles Lettres in Paris and shouted, Je tiens mon affaire. I've cracked it! Before fainting dead away on the carpet. Actually, what it translates to directly is, I have my things. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what I thought. And I was like, I got my stuff. That's it? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I'm gonna yell. I got my stuff. I got my stuff. Um, yeah, and so this was 1822, and and he had done it, and um, unfortunately, as it is in most cases, behind every genius is a long line of people who are almost equally as intelligent and, and worked very really hard. hard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that got screwed over. That's the way it is for this. And um, Young, and by extension the British, felt that Champollion had bogarted all the credit for decipherment. Um, Because a lot of people had put in a lot of work. I mean, I've never heard of Thomas Young. And I knew knew who Champollion was. Yeah, and so that's, that's something, like, these are the characters that we read about, these, like, tortured geniuses who actually were just sort of, like, lucky jerks. Um, which like, but you know, Champollion wasn't all bad because after he was made curator at the Louvre, he um, offered Young access to some demotic texts. Oh, in 1826, threw him a bone there. Yeah, right. Um, and so uh, Champollion rounded out his career and kind of life with an expedition to 18 to Egypt in 1829, where he just gobbled up all the texts he could find, which is like really amazing to think that. Like he was the first person in thousands of years to pick up a text and read it from the hieroglyphics. That's so amazing. Right? Like I I know maybe yeah. he was a jerk who stole the credit, whether intentionally or not, but just wow. Yeah, yeah. It's really it's like really impressive. And like it should be and maybe this is just like a failed Acadian student speaking, but it should be nearly as impressive that other people can almost read it. But yeah. <laughs> well, you're doing great. <laughs> no, I'm doing fine. Um, but that was in 1829, but he died in 1832 um, from a stroke. But it's been, a, it, but his cause of death is, is said to be the hardships of the Egyptian journey. He thought too hard. Um, <laughs> Poor guy. And he was 41, and his grammar of ancient Egyptian was published posthumously. Um, and it's been digitized, and I'm going to include it in the show notes. Awesome. Um, so if you can read French, you can read Egyptian. Yeah, and even if you can't, uh, you can probably use Google Translate if you yeah. want to browse it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty cool. Um, 
now, like in the in the past couple hundred years, um, it's it's now Middle Egyptian is what we call the classical form of ancient Egyptian. Um, that's what's in um, hieroglyphics. Mm-hmm. And it's relatively well understood, uh, largely because of the persistence of grammatical structures into Coptic. Oh, that's handy. Um, so you can sort of uh, trace it back. That's kind of how like Arabic and like well Arabic and Biblical Hebrew you can trace it back to Akkadian roots, and so you can get a sense of Akkadian structures. Um, so once you have it deciphered, you can kind of work work in both directions. Which is is just it's it's all I find it very fascinating to watch where languages survive, and how they survive, and how long they survive. Um, That's actually something you... I wanted to ask you about in terms of languages surviving, because as we mentioned in episode one, I really love the mummy movies, and there is some speaking of quote ancient Egyptian in those movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, I assume that they had some kind of consultant but do we know what no. what so, it sounded like <laughs> no no <laughs> short answer so no we actually, okay so we we have like absolutely no idea what it sounds like okay um when you transliterate it it looks ridiculous um i i i mean i haven't studied um middle egyptian but i've i've like read a lot of stuff that refer that uses Egyptian words and it's always just like a series of consonants and diacritic marks like the little like accents and hats and things mm-hmm. um, but the Egyptologists kind of just stuff vowels in between them to make it easier to say okay um, but <laughs> on the Wikipedia entry they're like super like emphatic about how it is like in no way are they saying that this is how an everyday Egyptian would have said it. Like, they're going to get sued or something. Like, it's a really weird... Well, it's also, it's, it's like, very like, responsible of Wikipedia. Just I, to be like, hang on. We don't but know like, for sure. Right. And it's like, we are not saying that this is how they said it. We've got... We've got this guy, Tutankhamun. You I've heard, heard of him? I've heard of him. Yeah. So we say Tutankhamun in English. Mm-hmm. Um, and here, I, like, looked it up in IPA. And try okay. to approximate what it will sound like. Uh-huh. Um, so, but this is the next paragraph after them saying, like, we're not saying this is how it was said. But this but is how it was said. In his lifetime, it was likely to be pronounced something like Tawat Anhu Aman. Tawat Anhu Aman. There's a there's a, a Hamza there, there's a glottal stop. After the T, so Tawat, Anghu, so a Ha, Ha, Yeah, Hu, and then there's an Ein. So okay. it's an Aman. So it was not not tonal, not like Chinese and other. Uh, no, I I don't think so. No, but I don't know. I don't like. But it was invested with kind of more mouth sounds than than English syllables <laughs> are. Right, yeah. So it has letters more like what you see in Semitic languages. So yeah, like the Ains and the and the Hamzas. Um, the ch is very and, familiar to me. Yeah, the ch, ch and the Ain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and but like that's cool. It's very cool. I it's sort yeah. of the impossible quest because it's not like we're gonna dig up an MP3 
It's not like you're going to open a canopic jar and find a Zune, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you aren't. But here's some cool stuff. Um, there are some words that you use possibly, yeah, every day. You use these words every day, Anna, uh, that are Egyptian words. Really? So words in Greek that come from the Greek like ebony and ivory. Oh my God, Stevie Wonder's career would be nothing without the Egyptians. Wait, is that Stevie Wonder? Is that Michael Jackson? I don't, I think it's Michael Jackson and Sir Paul McCartney. Oh no. <laughs> We're equally great at pop culture. But I, I like that you like combine the two and they become, they're by their powers combined. Stevie Wonder. Um, cat. That is a word I use a lot. Yep. Yeah. And I thought that it came from Arabic since in Arabic it's cult, but, um, it would, they were like big into cats. I don't know if you heard, um, the Egyptians. Yeah. They were like big into cats. Yeah. They were the first internet. Oh yeah, they were. Yep. Um, words like Pharaoh. I know that one. Yep. And so that's, um, in Egyptian, that means great house. Hey, great house. Oh, great thanks. house, man. Thanks. Um, and the name Egypt, mm. which is like, it's pretty cool because it's not always like that. No. Although, did you we, know that the word for s the Spain comes from Carthaginian? It means I land of, it, yeah, it means land of rabbits. Aw. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well. Fun facts. Egypt comes from Hekupta. And Hikupta means, if you like parse it out into the different parts, it is the home of the Ka of Ptah. And so a Ka is the soul. And so Egypt is where the soul of Ptah lives. But what about the Ba with the Ba? Oh, jeez. <laughs> the Bang to Bang? The Ka right? of Ta. The Ta Ka. Okay. All right. Um, but so translating, um, deciphering hieroglyphics, probably the most famous instance of this, mm -hmm. I'm going to say. Um, but another kind of famous, uh, use of multilingual inscriptions being used as ciphers is in the case of cuneiform. Um, and cuneiform was a writing system. So it wasn't a language. It was used by languages, like how Cyrillic can be used to write um, like Uzbek or Turkmen or Tajik or Russian, or Russian. but it's not, so it's but this, you can also write Uzbek. System yes. Used so by it's lots a, of different yeah. languages. Right. Uh, but cuneiform isn't an alphabet system, but it's a writing system. So that's, oh, okay. So it's, okay. so like, but yeah. So they're, they're two different things and it's very, it's very confusing. Um, but that writing system was used with the invention of writing, so with Sumerian. Um, and it was kind of rudimentary at that point because we were kind of new to it. Up through the first century C when everybody gave up on it. Because like, at this point, they hard. were like, yeah, basically. And they now they were using things like Aramaic um, and like Syriac, where they were like, it's so much easier to just write on some paper than getting out carve your carve this out in some clay chisels and your reed and hoping pens. it doesn't rain yeah yeah um and so the 
it was it was cracked using the Behistun inscription in Iran, um, which was done by King Darius of Persia. So this was during the Achaemenid Empire, mm-hmm. um, and it was written in three languages: Old Persian, Assyrian, and Elamite. Okay. And so scholars were able to figure out Old Persian from Persian, and these these two Assyriologists, Edward Hanks, who I had never heard of. Um, and Henry Rawlinson, who was the Champollion of this piece. So Edward Hanks uh, they would were be ab- the Thomas Young. Yeah. Aww. Yeah. And he was Irish versus English. So oh, it's man. Like, it's the same. That's a, oh, yeah, it's a bummer. That's rough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so by 1851, those two guys were able to read 200 Babylonian signs, um, which makes about 197 more signs than I can read at this point. 200 more than me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, but there are still languages out there that we can't read, which is exciting. I mean, There's, yeah, and frustrating. Yeah, yeah, and there are people who are there are people who are working and like actively working on trying to figure them out. Um, there's Linear A, uh, which is found on the Aegean Islands and in the Greek mainland in Laconia, and nobody knows what it is. Um, it's like Bronze Age, and is it Anatolian? Is it Phoenician? Is it some kind of weird Greek? Is it Indo-Iranian? Is it Etruscan? Is it Indo-European? Like, seriously. No, like, nobody knows. Um, and then there's Harappan, which was used <laughs> in the second... <laughs> and also used <laughs> in the late 80s to today. <laughs> Harappan. Haboots and cats Actually, and the boots 70s. and cats. All right. Again, we've established we're not great at pop culture. I was just trying to make a joke about the rap music. Okay, about the raps? The raps. Well, Harappan was used in the second millennium BCE, and um, nobody knows what it is. So it was used in like the Indus Valley Civilization, um, which was a major player in the Bronze Age around the Indian Ocean. Um, and but we don't know who nobody it belongs knows- to. We know who it belongs to. Oh, okay. But we don't know. Yeah, because we find um, there's writing on stamp seals. There's there's graffiti, um, and so we. But nobody knows what the language is, and they can't tell if it's maybe Dravidian, like some of the other languages in the um, in South Asia. Is it Austroasiatic? Is it its own phylum that we don't that we don't have? Is it some other crazier idea? There are people who really want the Indus Valley civilization to be that of the Aryans. So mm. you've got people who are like, is this like Indo-Iranian? And like, it's, it's really bonkers. And also there's also cool stuff going on with Harappa where they have like um, images of, of uh, unicorns. What? Yeah. So like Harappa is wild. Um, uh, because it's just full of mysteries. And so like there are and there are other languages that we just can't read. But maybe somebody listening to this will be the one to crack it. I mean, if you do, give us some credit. Yes. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, don't be a Champollion about it. Don't be a Champollion. Well, thank you all for listening to the adventures of Napoleon and company and his Le Geek Squad. What a great Saturday morning cartoon. Le Geek Squad. <laughs> and then it's like Captain Planet where there's one for each. Like, I'm an engineer. I'm an archaeologist. I'm heart. 
It's just the same heart guy. It's like, Marco, yes. get your pet monkey out of here. Oh, wow. You remember a lot more of that than I do. Pretty sure his name was Marco. I know he had a pet monkey. Because oh, I was like, dag on it. We didn't say, there? we didn't make the boof joke. Well, I don't think you said he had beef. So I didn't. Oh, man. Oh, so we can't say that like Champollion and Young were beefing. Boofing. They were, <laughs> they were boofing. <laughs> I mean, there it is. God dang, I love languages. Oh, man, I love it so much. Ah. Okay, good stuff. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Dirt. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. And until then, please consider uh, donating to us on our Patreon. It's at www.patreon.com slash the dirt. Follow us on Facebook on The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And you can always drop us an email at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye, dirtbags. Bye.